Assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So for this episode, I hope wherever you're listening, I hope you got your tinfoil hat ready because we're about to dive into some pretty big time conspiracy theories. Uh, Well, specifically just one. Um, But I'm not sure about you guys, but I know for me personally, sometimes I like to come up with these like random conspiracy theories in my head just for the heck of it on the smallest amount, if any evidence possible. Um, and today is no different. So if you, for those who, uh, listened to last week's episode, which you haven't listened to, I recommend, uh, going back and listening to it. Uh, we recapped Apple's September event where they released a bunch of new products, uh, specifically the, the Apple Watch, the Air, new AirPods Pro, and the new iPhones. And one of the big things that stuck out from that event was the fact that the iPhone mini, uh, is supposedly dead. Um, but one thing that's interesting is the iPhone 13 mini is still for sale on Apple's website. So if you wanted to buy a, an iPhone mini, you still could. You would just be getting essentially last year's model since they didn't refresh it for the iPhone 14. They just made the iPhone 14 and the iPhone 14 Plus along with the regular Pro Pro line. Um but this got me thinking, what if, now, before, before we dive into this, uh, this theory here, I need you to go to your, uh, your spice cabinet or wherever you keep your salt and just grab a big old handful of that, because uh, you're going to need to take that big amount of salt uh, with this theory, because I have no insider information, I don't have any, you know, the only evidence that I have to for this theory is what I just told you, that the iPhone 13 mini is still for sale on Apple's website. That's the only evidence I have to base this theory off of. So take it all with a grain of salt or a handful or two and make sure you got your tinfoils, tinfoil hats ready. Um, now, I need to send this message out to my boy Tim Cook. Uh, Tim, if you're listening and this isn't already your plan, uh, well, boy, do I have a good one for you. So the, the so since the iPhone mini uh, was not updated for the iPhone 14, but the iPhone 13 mini is still for sale, what if Apple is doing some kind of like TikTok type cycle, um, like kind of like Intel used to do or what? Apple used to do with like their, you know, iPhone 4 and then 4S and then 5 and then 5S and 6 and 6S where they have the S line, which is just like a minor update. What if they do the same thing, but with the mini and the plus? Now, I'm not saying like it has to be like every other year, like this year they did the plus, next year they'll do the mini, then the year after that they'll go back to the plus and so on. I mean, it could be like every two years they release a mini or whatever, I don't know. But how cool would that be if they kind of did this like alternating cycle? I mean, that way you pl- you please everyone, right? Especially if they're doing this 
this nonsense of the the baseline iPhones getting the same chip as last year, uh, then it really makes sense because the iPhone 14 Plus essentially has the same chip as the iPhone or iPhone yeah. So the iPhone 14 Plus essentially has the same chip as the iPhone 13 Mini. So what if next year the iPhone 13 or 15, I guess it would be, they make a mini there and I don't know, maybe they give that the the 16 or maybe they give it the 17. Uh, yeah, they give it the uh, um, A17 chip um, and keep them up to date again. And then the year after that, they keep it with the A17 chip and then they make the plus slot, plus version and then still have the mini to be kept around. I don't know. It seems like a very interesting strategy. Uh, I mean, it, as much as I could see this being a possibility, at the same time, I also feel like there's no chance in heck that it's going to happen. But hey, uh, you all I got to say is you heard it here first. Um, if they go ahead and do kind of this, they release a mini next year, uh, you know where you heard it from first. Um, I, I might, if I, if I even remember that I came up with this theory, which chances are I might not, which, although in fairness, because of how crazy it is, and if it actually happens, I might, um, <laughs> I, I might remember, but, uh, you know, we're going to be taking a victory lap on the, on the podcast, uh, if this does happen. Uh, but like I said, you know, take all this with a massive grain of salt, but I think that would just be really cool, um, if they could be able to pull that off. Uh, I know, supposedly, as far as the sales numbers go, the iPhone 13 mini supposedly wasn't performing that well, which is why they killed it in the first place to go with the Plus. Uh, but, you know, maybe maybe the I, I've heard already that the, uh, the iPhone 14 and I guess the iPhone 14 Plus supposedly aren't doing the hottest in the sales numbers. Um, which I guess isn't all that surprising, seeing that it's essentially the same phone as last year, uh, just rebranded a different name. So why spend an extra $100 when you can save yourself 100 bucks and get last year's model, which is basically the same thing. Uh, but, so who knows, maybe that will make them want to bring back the Mini also. I don't know, but I think it would be cool if they could somehow bring it back in some form or fashion and kind of, you know, maybe do like an alternate cycle or or maybe another theory here is they make the iPhone SE, they make that the mini phone, which I mean, technically they've done that in the past with the original iPhone SE was when all the phones were in the, uh, I'm trying to remember back when the iPhone SE came out. It was like you know, we had, I believe it was like around the time of the iPhone 7-ish or something. So, you know, we had the bigger phones and then the iPhone SE was the size of like the iPhone 5S. Um, so it was like the smaller phone. So I'm wondering, could that potentially be a another route to revive the mini? Although I don't think that's all that likely since the rumors that I've been hearing uh, is that the, the new iPhone SE is going to be based off the iPhone 10R line um and kind of rebrand that as the new iphone se so i don't necessarily think that's as likely uh but i think it'd be kind of cool if, if somehow some way they can bring back you know the mini phone it's probably not going to be like an every year upgrade like it was you know with the iphone 12 and the iphone 13 but i think if they could you know kind of maybe do some kind find some way to do some kind of altering in order to bring it back i think that would be that'd be pretty cool
Um, so yeah, I guess you can you can take your tinfoil hats off now. That was the big conspiracy that I was kind of thinking about uh, this past week as you know, kind of digesting all the information from that Apple event. Um, so now, and something else I want to get into is: um, Has anyone uh, been keeping up with the prices of 10 gigabit Ethernet? No, no one? It's just me? Okay. Uh, well, so there's an interesting thing going on with the 10 gig Ethernet, um, which I kind of wanted to talk about. So I got the, you know, I, I mentioned before, you know, kind of getting that, that home lab urge where you kind of want to, like, keep upgrading your setup, right? Um, and one thing that's kind of been on my mind for a while is getting 10 gig Ethernet, which, in fairness, would I make use of it? Probably not, but it's, you know, it's just one of those things that's like cool to have and play around with and, you know, see the fast speeds. Uh, but realistically, I probably wouldn't make use of it. And I obviously haven't bought anything 10 gig, uh, part, partly because as we're going to get into, it's still pretty darn expensive and I would essentially have to essentially buy a, a whole new infrastructure because none of the servers or computers I have are compatible for 10 gig, so I'd have to get like a bunch of you know network cards specifically for 10 gig. And depending on which route I chose, uh, those cards could either be pretty darn expensive, and I wouldn't have to worry about getting new cables, or I could get cheaper cards, but then I'd have to get a bunch of new cables. So it's it's kind of you know got to weigh the pros and cons. But the reason why I want to you know, bring this up is because everybody has gigabit ethernet. And if you're unfamiliar, if you, if you go to your router that your ISP gave you and you plug like your desktop computer into it, um, if you plug two computer, two desktop computers into that router and you have them communicate to each other, I would say there's a 99% chance you're going to get gigabit ethernet connect a gigabit ethernet connection between the two cuz gigabit's been around forever. Um it's been around since the late 90s. So which makes sense why if you want to buy any kind of gigabit networking like switches or cables or whatever it's pretty dirt cheap. Like right now if you go on eBay you can easily find gigabit switches for uh, here's one for under 20 bucks. I mean, it's only a five port switch, but you know, if you don't need a ton of networking capability, I mean, it, you know, who cares? Um, and easily you can buy new switches with, you know, 20 some like 24 ports for easily under hundred dollars and you can buy managed switches for, you know, under around a hundred dollars. So, I mean, there's a, a lot of options that you can buy in the gigabit range for pretty pretty cheap money. Um, now, if you when you hear heard me mention uh, a managed switch, if you're unfamiliar with that means, so switches they can either be unmanaged switches or essentially quote unquote dumb switches, which is essentially just acts like as extra Ethernet ports for your router. So if you you just plug you know two cables in there and you could talk to them that way. But the the nice thing about managed switches is you can set up and do a bunch of like configuration stuff on the switch. So a lot of the biggest thing I would say that people do with managed switches is setting up like VLANs, which are virtual LANs. Uh, I'm not going to go super in depth on that, but essentially what that means is you can 
divvy up your network on the switch. So say ports one through three can talk to each other, but they can't talk to any other ports on the switch. And then you could have another VLAN, say uh, ports four through six, and those can talk to each other. And they can also talk to ports one through three, but they can't talk to anyone else. And I mean, you can set all kinds of rules and other ways to divide up your network, which is really, really handy, especially if you're uh, going around with the, uh, the IoT devices or the Internet of Things devices, since those things are known to be absolutely horrendous when it comes to, you know, security. Um, so if you do ever get any kind of IoT device that has has to have internet connection, uh, you really want to make sure that you have some kind of switch or something that you can put it on its own separate VLAN so it can't con connect to anything else on your network. So if slash when it gets hacked, uh, you don't have to worry about it infecting everything else on your network because that would not be fun. Or the even better option is you just don't allow it to have any actual outside internet access, so then you can't really even get hacked in the first place. And also, you can keep it separate so it can't talk to anything else on your network and do any kind of snooping. So, yeah. So VLANs are pretty cool. I haven't really played around with them that much, uh, but the, the one switch that I have at my house does have uh, the ability to set up VLANs, although since all everything on that switch is you know my home lab essentially there's not a ton of point to use a vlan because everything kind of needs to talk to each other in the first place um and i don't really want to get any iot devices because i know how terrible they are as far as security goes so i don't even want to touch them um so that's kind of why i haven't really touched any of that stuff like as far as vlans but the point is gigabit switches pretty cheap you can find them you can find used enterprise ones um i'm, I'm looking on ebay right now here's a, a 48 port gigabit switch an old dell switch for like 70 dollars i mean the although i guess the one thing i will say is if you are looking at like old enterprise switches uh gigabit usually isn't an issue but once you get into like higher speeds like 10 gig or 40 gig or anything like that you potentially could run into licensing issues because these companies think that even though you own the hardware you can't have access to the whole thing and you have to buy a license which is stupid if i own the switch i should be able to use the switch that i paid for but you know that's a whole other conversation uh but the but the thing with the the reason why I, I'm kind of boggled by this, which I guess 10 gig is still pretty widely used as far as in the like the enterprise space because I mean 10 gig is fast. It's you know crazy fast speeds if you're talking about networking. Uh, but the thing that's that's interesting is gigabit Ethernet came out in the late 90s, and 10 gig first broke out onto the scene in 2002. So not much later from, so I mean, we're talking like maybe three, four years difference between gigabit and 10 gig. Now granted, back in 2002, 
the only way you could get 10 gig is if you used a fiber connection which now you're at now we're at the point where you can just use regular you know rj45 like ethernet cables as long as it's like as long as it's like cat 6 or above you're you're generally good uh i think you can kind of sort of scrape by with cat 5e but like you're the distance that you can have the cable work with 10 gig is a lot shorter than with like cat six or above but um but yeah like the the concept of 10 gig has been around for a long time just like the concept of gigabit ethernet has been around for a long time yet gigabit switches are dirt cheap and 10 gig switches are not <laughs> um now it obviously depends on what kind of 10 gig switch you're going for and how many ports you want um, but if you do a search for a 10 gig you know switch a lot of what you're going to find is like multiple hundreds of dollars switches and most of them are like enterprise switches that are like either 24 or 48 gigabit switches like ports and then you'll have like two to four uh you know 10 gig ports for a ton of money now if you only want if you only have like you know two 10 gig devices i mean then it's not that big of a deal but then you're kind of stuck if you ever want to expand you're kind of out of options um, but if you want like a standalone uh switch that only has 10 gig i mean you're talking a lot more than that um there was one switch i think it was from tp link uh, on amazon which the nice thing about this switch was it was all Ethernet jacks, like your standard RJ45 cable. Um, and that was $400 for, I think it was eight ports. Um, but the problem with that is the, the ability to run 10 gig Ethernet over that standard RJ45 type of cable, because that's more of a, a newer thing. Uh, let's see here. That, I believe, only came became available back in 2016 so that's still fairly new in like the networking game so if you, while it's nice that you don't have to worry about you know buying you know brand new cables and all that stuff the network cards are insanely expensive like one like you're looking probably around 100 bucks for a 10 gig um just rj45 connector like for a network card which i mean sure it's more convenient that way but that's if you have to if you're trying to you know add 10 gig to say i don't know three four devices uh right there that's three four hundred dollars plus your four hundred dollar switch i mean depending on how many you know devices you're trying to hook up with 10 gig i mean you're easily closing in on a thousand dollars right there um on the flip side you could get uh sfp plus switches and sfp plus network cards which are is a slightly older version that was kind of like more of the original uh 10 gig uh standard that was used so it's those are a lot cheaper like you can find um network cards with sfp plus connections for like you know 20 30 bucks easily so that's definitely the cheaper route to go and those switches are generally cheaper uh, but you also have to get new cables and those cables aren't nearly as cheap as your standard 
um, RJ45, you know, Cat6 Ethernet cables. Um, I mean, granted, they're not necessarily insanely expensive, but they're a lot more expensive as far as, like, the distance of the cable. So you can't get, like, you know, it's it's going to be more expensive if you want to get, like, say, a, a five-foot cable, which it's called, I believe, a DAC cable is kind of what they're called, um, and compared to just a regular CAT, you know, six cable. Uh, it's going to be a lot more expensive, um, per like, a, on a per-foot per basis uh, to get those kinds of cables, which if you're only running those cables inside your rack, um, then it's not, you don't necessarily need super long cables for that but if you wanted to do any kind of networking runs then you kind of run into some issues however one thing you can do is you can buy um, sfp plus modules that you can kind of use for different type of connections so you could you can actually buy an sfp plus module that will plug into say either your network switch or your um your network card and it can basically convert it to like say a cat 6 ethernet rj45 cable and then you could run that um from wherever in your house to the switch uh the only problem with those is i've heard they get really hot <laughs> Um, so it's generally, a, you, you generally don't want to have like multiple of those clustered together because you can run into some heating problems unless you got like really good airflow over them. Um, but the, the other thing is just like the, uh, the 10 gig network cards that use, um, the RJ45 connector, those SFP plus modules aren't exactly cheap either. Um, so... <laughs> You kind of run into the same issue of you know what do you do but if you wanted to do a long network run i think that that would probably be something that you might just have to like bite the bullet on because if you wanted to if you got wanted to buy like a long enough DAC or fiber cable to do the run you could do that but i mean that's a lot more expensive than just you know buying a long cat 6 ethernet cable and doing the run that way uh, but that's if you wanted to, you know, if you had, say, your your server rack, say, I don't know, in your basement or some, or out in your garage or something, and you wanted to run 10 gig into your, your office, um, then you could have some problems there. But, I mean, if you just run your, your rack or wherever you have your 10 gig, you know, in the same, if all of the devices, say, are in the same rack, then it's, I mean, not necessarily that big of an issue, Um I mean, you could even potentially have a problem where even if you're in the same office space, like to say the, the switch is in the same room as you, but you want to connect your, like, say your desktop to it. I mean, even that could be a decent run um, for like a DAC cable. Like uh, at my house, I have a couple of desktops hooked up to my network switch and I had to buy like, I mean, I had extra of the cabling, so I didn't necessarily need quite this long. I think it was like, 20 and 25 foot cables respectively uh to run to those devices so having to buy like either fiber or dac cables of that length would be not exactly super cheap uh i mean it wouldn't be like necessarily super expensive but it also wouldn't be wouldn't exactly be cheap either um whereas you know i got those ethernet cables for fairly cheap um so yeah, I don't know what's going on uh, with 10 gig. 
Um, it seems like the most cost-effective way to get into 10 gig, if you want to, is just buy, you know, like an enterprise switch or something, or some kind of switch on the used market that had that's just a gigabit switch but has 10 gig on it. Um, but like I mentioned, depending on the brand, you have to watch out um, as far as if you even have access to those 10 gig ports. Um, since I, I watched a video, I forget when it was, it was it was within the past week um, by Craft uh, Computing on YouTube where he tried to install 40 gig networking and I was like, man, you're trying to install 40 gig in your home lab and I don't even have 10 gig yet man but i mean he didn't it didn't work out because of this exact problem where the switch he got it was a uh, i think it was like a 48 port uh gigabit switch and then it had eight 10 gig ports and then four 40 gig ports i believe um but the problem was the all the gigabit ports worked fine but all the 10 gig ports only worked at one gig speed unless you bought the license and the 40 gig ports didn't work at all unless you got bought the license which the license was like five or six thousand dollars which uh yeah no that's gonna be a hard no for me um now granted not all the switches that you would you would buy that have 10 gig would run into that problem but that's something that you have to to watch out for um but yeah i so I think if you if you really wanted to get into the 10 gig game, right now your best bet is probably go with something with SFP plus, and probably try to find something that is roped in with a gigabit switch. Because if you just go pure 10 gig, I mean the cheapest you're probably looking at is like well over 200, maybe a little below 300. Um, so, I mean, I mean, in fairness, depending on how deep your pockets is, that might be nothing to you. Um, but for us trying to scrap by and like to find, uh, find good deals on stuff, that's a little, a little high. Um, yeah, that's the situation with 10 gig. I, I don't know what's going on. Uh, it's, it's been around for over, a, over, well, I guess, shoot, I guess it's, if it, I said 2002, man, it's been around for like two decades already. It should be, should be a lot cheaper than that. But I guess most data centers and whatnot are still using 10 gigs. So it's, it's not like gigabit where it's kind of being phased out from the data center. So it's not necessarily as desirable, um, as, as, uh, but since 10 gig is still being widely used, I guess, uh, it's, that's why it's still expensive. Um, but anyway, moving on from that, another thing that I kind of want to talk about was coding style guides. Now, if you if you do any kind of software development professionally like I do, you are definitely aware of coding style guides, and you probably have your opinions on them. Um, so if you're unfamiliar, coding style guides is basically a way to ensure that all the developers on a given project are all writing code that essentially looks the same. So um, if you think about, like, if you wanted to write a book, for example, with, say, like, three or four other people, um, you'd want to make sure you have some kind of uh, grammar style guide for the book so it doesn't look like, you know, three or four people 
you know, kind of threw their parts of the book together and, you know, called it a day, right? Uh, you'd want to make sure that you're placing the commas in the same spot and you're doing the same kind of indenting and same kind of spaces after the periods and, you know, all that jazz. It's, it's essentially the same thing, but instead of for writing sentences, it's for how you format your code. Um, but it, it goes a lot, lot deeper than that since it's not only how you format your code, like, uh, say, say for example, you're using a, uh, a language like either a C, C++, Java, JavaScript, or something that has curly braces. Um, there's a there's a big debate in the uh, in the software development world of if your curly braces go on the same line as say your if statement or for loop or while loop or whatever, or if they go on a new line. Um, so the point of the style guide is to define that. So say the style guide says all curly braces have to go on a new line. So therefore, any software developer that's writing code for this project has to put their curly braces on a new line. Um, now, the reason why I say people have their opinions on this is I generally think that there are really three opinions. There's people that love it, people that are indifferent, and people that hate it. <laughs> Um, so the people that love it are probably the people that wrote it <laughs> or the people that code, the, their coding style in general lines up perfectly with the coding style guide. So it's, they don't really even have to worry about it. The people that are indifferent to it are probably the people that they generally code to the same style as the style guide, but perhaps the style guide says like before every function you have to have, you know, this kind of syntax uh, to describe your comments so we can auto-generate, you know, documentation, that kind of thing. And you're like, ugh, you know, kind of an extra step of things you have to do. And then there's the people that hate it, which are obviously the people that their coding style is completely different than the style guide. So, for example, if the style guide says all your curly braces have to go on a new line, these people are the ones that put the curly braces on the same line, a.k.a. the monsters of the world, because that's totally the wrong way to do it. Um, that's just my personal opinion. I, I always do the new line. That's that's always how I, I've programmed my curly braces. They go on a new line. I personally think it looks cleaner, but, you know, both work, same thing. And the, the funny thing is, uh, especially with languages like, you know, the, the ones that use curly braces, if you wanted to, you could write your entire program on one line of code and it would still work just fine. Um, anyone working with the style guide would probably have an aneurysm and want to kill you, but it would still work. <laughs> um, but yeah, really the point of the style guide is to prevent things like that from happening, to prevent someone from writing the entire program on one singular line of code because they're a masochist and they, they hate everyone. Um, and you know, just, but the, but the main reason is just to make sure that all the code looks uniform. Um, and it doesn't look like 30 or 40 or 10 or however many developers are working on the code base, um, you know, wrote the code. So in that instance, I think style guides are great. Do I like using them? I would say I'm kind of in the indifferent to... 
yeah, I guess I'd say I'm in the indifferent crowd. I don't necessarily hate them because I understand how useful they are. Um, but I think style guides, um, we talked a f- way back, a few back, I don't remember how many episodes ago it was, about documentation and how software developers hate writing documentation, but also hate when there's no documentation about how the program works. I think style guides kind of fall into a similar vein as documentation um, because some people kind of hate having to deal with them, uh, but at the same time, they also hate when all the code doesn't look uniform. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's kind of, you know, one of those things. And the other thing, like I mentioned, like some people hate it because the style guide doesn't go along with their style of coding and how they like to code. Um, now when I talk about style guides, it also goes a lot deeper than, you know, how you do your curly braces, right? It also goes into how do you name, like naming schemes for like your variables. So one common one is like if all your private class variables have to have like say m underscore and then the name or all your variable variables have to be camel case uh, which if you're not familiar with what camel case is it essentially looks like a camel in the sense that every new word of the variable is uppercase so if your your variable was um person's name um like well I guess camel case has potentially two variations. The first one is every first letter is capitalized. So in this case, for person's name, the P would be capitalized and the N would be capitalized. Or another option is the first word is lowercase and then every subsequent word after that, the first letter is uppercase. Um, So if you said person's first name, um, you could have a lowercase p or an uppercase p, kind of whatever your preference is, and then the f would be uppercase and the n would be uppercase. So that's one kind of naming convention. Another naming convention, I forget exactly what it's called, but essentially you have a you have a space in between each word. So if your variable was person's first name, you would have person, but because spaces don't exist, use underscores. So it'd be person underscore first underscore name would be your variable. And that would be something that would be defined in the style guide. Now, a lot of people have their kind of own conventions for naming variables. So if it's say, if they like to use the spaces and underscore, like essentially using the underscores for spaces thing for their variables, and the style guide says, no, you have to use camel case, they're probably not going to like it. Similarly, if the style guide said to use the underscores and you like to use camel case, you're probably not going to like it either. Um, but so in addition to that, there's also things like how your classes should look, um, how things should be commented, where you should have comments, um, what kind of things should be in your comments, you know, all that kind of stuff. Pretty much anything that you can think of when it comes to how your program should be wrote, written and what it should look like aesthetically is pretty much all in the style guide. Um, so, yeah, I, it's definitely a necessary evil, in my opinion, especially when you're working um, with a large, a large team and a large code base. Uh, because if you have, if if it's only like a couple developers, um, and that's it for the entire code base, then personally, I don't necessarily think it's all that big of a deal. Um, I guess it really depends on the project. Uh, like most things, it's, uh, the answer is it depends. Um, but like if it's if it's a short project and it's only a couple, well, 
short project that's uh, some famous last words right there. Uh, but hypothetically, if it is a short project and it's just like, you know, two, three developers, say, working on it, or if it's even just one developer, I think a style guide is completely unnecessary. Uh, but if you're working, you know, on a, a big project, like you're working on a an app, big application, a game, or a, a framework, or operating system, or I don't know, anything, any kind of big application where you might not even just have a small team, but you have, like, multiple small teams that are all working on different parts of the same project, then that's really where a style guide kind of becomes crucial to make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, like I know, for example, Google is famous for having like a company wide style guide. Um, and in my personal professional, uh, experience, um, I've been on a couple different software development teams and each one of those have had their own style guides, uh, which is another thing about style guides, which can be kind of a pain is when you're on one team and they have one style guide that says to do things a certain way, and then you go to a different team and their style guide's completely different and says things to do something, you know, completely different. So say team A, they're like, yeah, you have to use camel case and your semicolons go on a new line. Or not semicolons, your curly braces go on a new line. And then you, you code for that team for... I don't know, so you code there for two, three years, so you get used to, you know, coding in that style, and then you, you switch over to a different development team, and they're like, yeah, curly braces are on the same line, and your variables have to use underscores and no capitals. So, like, that, that drastic switch, it's like, you have to, like, retrain your brain again to, you know, code to that style, which is why style guides can also be a pain in the butt, um, especially if it's not... If they're not, uh, the style isn't isn't your style for how you program, um, and or you could just be the 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 cool kid that codes it up however he feels like it, and then before he has to push his code or deliver it, goes back through every single line of code that he wrote and edits it to make it fit the style guide. You could be that guy that spends an entire day uh, making sure your code fits the style guide could be that guy uh don't recommend being that guy uh because that's will make you fall into the third category of style guide people which is the ones that hate it um which ironically the reason you hate it is because it's completely self-inflicted because you didn't follow the style guide in the first place as you were going along which i guess in fairness you that can be said for for anything right i think a big comparison there is like cleaning your house, right? No one really likes cleaning the house, but I think a lot of the reason why a lot of people... No, don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily a big fan of cleaning the house. It's, it's a chore, and I don't necessarily like it. But again, I'm more indifferent to it because I make sure I keep up with, keep up with it. So it's not like uh, it gets to the point where it's like completely filthy or I know people are coming over and I have to make sure it's clean. So if you think about, uh, you know, the style guide as far as in like in terms of cleaning the house, the person that waits until they're either about to deliver the code or like push the code to be merged or whatever to then do making sure everything falls in line with the style guide is the same person that 
you know, never cleans their house until they know people are coming over. And then they hate cleaning the house because they have to spend like an entire week or multiple days or weekend or a very extended period of time cleaning the house because it's so darn dirty because they didn't keep up with it and have to do everything. Whereas the, the person that keeps up with cleaning the house, say like every week or I don't know, two times a week or however often they do it, you know, they keep up with it. Uh, if there's a mess, they clean it up right away. Um, and that kind of a thing. Uh, if they know someone's coming over, uh, then it's not necessarily that big of a deal because they don't necessarily have to do a whole lot of cleaning because there's not a whole lot to clean. Sure, they got to clean up some stuff, but I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Just like if you're always keeping up with the, the style guide as like you're going along coding, um, when it comes time to push or deliver the code, you just got to do a quick look through, make sure everything looks right um, and is up to spec, and then you're good to go. You don't have to worry about sifting through every single line of code and changing things and adding comments that you didn't add and making sure your comments fit the style guide and making sure all your semi or your curly braces are in the right spot and all that jazz. You don't have to worry about that because you already did all that stuff. Um, so I think... If you're working with style guides in your professional career and you're in that camp that hates them, I understand where you're coming from. Um, and if, especially if the style guide that's given to you isn't how you personally like to program in your free time, um, I get that. Uh, my recommendation would be rather than coding it how you want and then worrying about the style guide later, is as you're going, make kind of make sure um, things kind of fall in line with the style guide. So when it does come time for you to push your code or deliver your code or whatever, it you don't really have to worry about it. And you might just have to do a quick look through to make sure everything looks good. Maybe change a couple things that you can, that kind of slipped past or slipped under the radar or whatever. Uh, but that'll at least hopefully help you to not hate them as much because as I've kind of mentioned while I personally aren't necessarily a huge fan of them uh, I think it's definitely one of those necessary evil type things um, because as much as I would just like to code how I want to code I also see the value in making sure that the whole code base looks looks the same because just like if you're reading a book if how how one person writes is completely different than how another person writes and they join you know, those two things together, it can be kind of, you know, jarring to be reading in one kind of style of speech. And then, you know, next thing you know, you get to the next paragraph, and it's like completely different. Um, so just kind of, you know, it helps the readability and helps the understanding. Um, so yeah, those are style guides. I know some people, uh, like, especially if you sent this to your grandma, and the grandma's listening, and she has no idea uh, what anything really about coding, just listen to this and I'm sorry, <laughs> um, but hopefully, you know, maybe you, you at least kind of, you know, hopefully the, the tying into the books example kind of, you know, helped you, you under, understand, you know, why software developers have style guides and, and all that stuff. Um, but even if it did go over your head, I hope you still enjoyed the episode and I hope everyone else hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, and if you did, I'd ask that you leave please leave a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. And also be sure to share with a friend or family member who you think might uh, enjoy about um, any of the topics we covered today, or maybe they're uh, an iPhone mini fan and maybe you'll send them this and maybe give them a tiny bit of uh, a, a mini 
bit of hope, if you will. <laughs> Puns. Um, so if you have any questions about this episode or you have uh, any topics you, you want my opinions on or any questions you want to ask me, uh, feel free to shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. Uh, there's a link in the show notes below that you can click. Um, and that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, fool nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins podcast.